You are listening to the complete first season of Fear FM. Things hadn't gone well for Prakash this year. He lost his well-paying IT job in the US thanks to the recession and he had to pack his bags and move back to India, to his mother's house, to the abode of a woman he had detested for a long time. After all, she was responsible for his dear father leaving them when he was a little boy. Now she was sick and slowly wasting away and he had no interest in looking after her. Call him a bad son. What's one more insult? The loser who couldn't make it in the US. The failure who had to ditch his ambition and come home with his tail between his legs. His mother wheezed and moaned in pain and muttered all night long like a bodily manifestation of his failure. To make things worse, the maid who usually looked after her from the aged care company decided to quit. Apparently, she was heading off to Mumbai to pursue a career as a TV actor. I hope you get cast as a servant every time, Prakash had wished when he was told of the news of her departure. When he didn't have to cook, clean and feed his mother, he wandered around his childhood home, bitter and full of anger. At his employers, the economy, at his mother, at his judgmental neighbors, his relatives who rarely dropped in, his relatives who did visit that he hated. So much hate. He channel surfed, watched porn, took photos of the shadows in the house on his phone. He disliked posts on Facebook. All of this while his mother wheezed in the background, her labored breathing a soundtrack to the dismal here and now. When his mood improved, he applied for jobs, but the auto-generated rejection letters ensured that he was back in the darkness of his soul. He flinched when his mother touched him lovingly. He looked away when she tried to talk to him. You look unwell, Prakash. Are you eating well? I know you hate looking after me. Sorry, son. Enough with the guilt trip, he would snap at her. Sometimes he felt sorry for her, and himself, and when he did, he would go to the corner of his study and weep with his hands covering his mouth. And something watched him crying. Something that grew from the darkness in him, the shadows in the house, from the wretched state of his mother. Something ready to feed on the misery. A creature that would reveal its form, nature and purpose to him soon enough. His mother vomited overnight while he was asleep. So Prakash's first job even before he had his coffee, was to get the rags and the mop and the bucket and get to cleaning the mess. He moved his mother to the living room couch, asked her to wait there in her soiled clothes, 
and then he proceeded to clean the bedroom. He muttered under his breath as he cleaned the filth. Couldn't you just die, woman? he said, and then felt immediately bad for wishing ill on his mother. When he was done cleaning, he took his mother to the bathroom and seated her on a plastic stool and asked her to strip. He then waited outside while she covered herself with a towel. Son? she called out feebly. He bathed her with warm water, washing away the vomit as she stared blankly at the wall. He had seen that look a long time ago in her eyes, the day his father left, when he asked her, Do you really want me to go? Are my sins that unforgivable? What about everything we built together, our Prakash? He didn't understand what his father meant by sins. He could never imagine his father sinning, and he had never managed to find out to this day. As far as he was concerned, it was a load of bullshit his mother had cooked up to drive his father out of their home, out of his life. She had the same blank look in her eyes that day, and she never stopped his father. The days and nights in his home, in his new life, drifted away like dry leaves in the wind. This was made worse by his decision not to go out of the house. He did not take calls of even the few close friends he had left. It was turning out to be another boring night in his house, except he sensed something sinister in the air, something a bit off, like a painting that was not level. It took him a while to go to sleep. The fan was struggling to move cool air around the room that night, and the unsettling feeling that dawned on him earlier that night intruded his sleep. After a while, he gave up trying. No sleep tonight, he thought. A drink and mindless channel surfing for useless fitness products commercials was just what he needed. He walked to the kitchen to get a glass of cold milk. Then, he heard what can be best described as a loud sucking sound coming from his mother's bedroom. What's going on? He thought to himself. Hope she's not vomiting again, or, or worse. He slowly walked towards the bedroom, adjusting to the semi-darkness in the house, dimly lit by the light coming in through the windows from the street lamps. He peered into the room, in the direction of his mother. It took a while for him to believe what he was seeing. A shadowy form was seated on his mother's body, and it had its mouth clamped around his mother's face, as if it was trying to swallow her whole head. Its jaws seemed to have the capacity to dislocate, like that of a snake, and its eyes were pearl white. Prakash couldn't talk or scream for a second. Only a croak escaped his throat, and the creature turned and looked at him and snarled. Then it merged into the dark corners of the room, leaving Prakash with a pounding heart and a sweaty forehead. His mother was breathing heavily, and she started coughing. At which point Prakash switched on the lights, rushed to the bed, sat her up and started stroking her back. He uttered words of comfort, whatever he could muster to calm her down. Nightmare, nightmare, she said. Yes, nightmare, Prakash whispered as he scanned the room in fear.
Prakuram, the representative from the aged care company, was sipping his tea loudly as Prakash shifted uncomfortably on the couch. At least two weeks before we can find a replacement, he said. But you said ten days, and that deadline has passed, and now you're telling me it's going to be another fourteen days? Prakash said. I am sorry, sir, but it is not like we did this on purpose. What can I say? Workers can be a bit unreliable these days, and I know it reflects badly on us, but what can we do? Prakash looked outside the window, angrily. It was blinding hot outside, and he was glad they had installed a new fan in the living room. I'm going to offer you a refund for the two weeks of advance payments you made, and you can start the new payment cycle when we get someone in. He continued. In two weeks, Prakash interrupted. Yes, sir, two weeks, sir. What do you need from me? Credit card, sir. I'll grab it for you, Prakash said as he stood up and walked into the bedroom. Dukuram pulled out his phone and started browsing his Facebook page. Initially, he ignored the sounds coming from underneath the couch. But then it became so persistent that he looked underneath the couch to see if it was a rat. Nothing down there. He sat back up. Suddenly, he felt something pressing against his back, like someone was sitting right behind him, in the narrow space between his body and the backrest of the couch. He felt two cold hands resting on his shoulder. Rukhram froze. The hands moved down. A sound emanated from the thing behind him. Rukhram jumped from the couch, screaming. When he turned around, there was nothing on the couch. He took in some deep breaths and then let out a nervous laughter. That is when he noticed what looked like smoke billow out from underneath the couch. But the way it moved, it was not like any smoke Regram had ever seen in his life. It formed a black humanoid head with pearl white eyes and it stared at him from the floor. Regram screamed again. Someone grabbed his shoulder. He nearly jumped out of his skin, swatted at his body, and turned around. It was Prakash. When Dugaram looked back down at the floor, the face was gone. What happened? Prakash asked. The, the thing, the, the, that, fa- that face, the, there was, he said. What? I, I, I saw something. Dugaram sat down again. He had turned pale. He grabbed the credit card from Prakash and punched the numbers into his payment app hastily. You should have a refund in two business days. I'm heading off now, he said. Dukaram nearly ran out of the door, leaving Prakash surprised and confused. Prakash wanted to stop the man and ask him what he saw, but he was long gone. Prakash was left with the same unease he felt the other night, when he imagined the creature trying to bite off his mother's head. Prakash was feeding his mother rice porridge with one hand and checking emails on his phone with the other. 
he ignored emails from former colleagues checking in on his well-being. He was looking for responses to some of the recent jobs he had applied for. They all started with, We regret to inform you. After a while, he threw the phone onto his mother's bed in frustration. Are you done? he asked his mother. Some cold water, darling, please. He pressed a glass of water against her lips and wiped it when she was done drinking. She ran her hand across his forehead. It was strange, feeling anger and pathos towards this woman, and then enjoying her caresses. I don't know what I'm feeling these days, Prakash muttered. He had started talking to himself a lot in recent times. He pushed her hand away and went to the kitchen to wash up. After drying the plate and the glass with the tablecloth, he went to the balcony and sat down with the newspaper, circling more job ads. Beta, don't forget to go to Salilda's daughter's wedding tomorrow. The invitation is on the coffee table, his mother said from the bedroom. Great, he said. You must go. They always ask about us, about you. One of the few people who bothered to drop in to check on me, she said. He grunted. What? You must go, Beta. It will do you some good to get out of the house. Okay, okay, get off my case now. I will go, he said. For once, he did agree. He needed to get out of the house. It had been a few days since the incident involving Raghuram the aged care rep who ran out of the house, frightened by something he saw emerge from underneath the couch. Things were quiet around the house. Almost unnaturally quiet, Prakash thought. But then he attributed this to his ever-increasing gloom over his job situation. He was not going to get back to the US anytime soon, and the local employers did not want to touch his CV with a ten-foot pole. He was glad he had a large pool of savings to prop him, while he waited for good news. Sleep came to him, after hours of tossing and turning. And when it finally arrived, he was trapped in a terrible nightmare involving spiders and cobwebs. He woke up with a startle, the moment the spider sank its fangs into his flesh in his dream. All he could hear was the sound of his heart beating madly. All he could see was the monstrous patterns etched on the ceiling by the faint glow from the street lamps. Then he heard it, clear as the day, a scuttling sound, something rushing towards his bed from the living room. froze in anticipation. His fingers dug into the sheets. His breathing was suddenly so laboured he thought he was going to die from a lack of oxygen. He felt the weight of the thing that had climbed onto the bottom of his bed. He felt its many spider-like limbs dig into the mattress as it moved up to face him. It was right on top of him now, looking down on him. Pearl-white eyes set on a raven-black head. The two eyes became many all of a sudden, like those of a spider. 
It moved its face close to his. He did not dare look down. He didn't have the strength to take stock of the entirety of this monstrous being. This is a nightmare. Wake, wake up, he tried to say. But no sound escaped his mouth. He couldn't move. He couldn't sleep. He was imprisoned in a cold tomb of his sweat, paralyzed and helpless, as the thing now tore open a mouth where there was once darkness and cackled. Prakash groaned pathetically, as if that would ward off this beast of the night. I want her, it said. I want her. I want her. You don't want her. Prakash managed to move a finger on his left hand, and then the spell was broken, and he screamed. The creature watched him in delight, and then, slowly and purposefully, retreated, and jumped off the bed, and scuttled away. Prakash tried to shut out the sounds of the wedding by reminiscing about the conversation he had on the bus on his way here, trying to dim one painful experience with another. He had run into a college mate of his, Vaishnav. My friend, long time no see. Are you back from the US? I thought you settled there, married a gory. <laughs> Uh, oh, you must have lost your job because of what my father jokingly calls KFC. <laughs> he droned on. No need to go to the US, yar. Start a startup. So many people are becoming overnight millionaires. I remember from college days, you were an inventive, creative guy. I thought you would have been an entrepreneur. What happened, yar? Prakash dug his thumbnail into the flesh on the back of his hand and drew blood. Presently, a dance celebrating Mr. and Mrs. Whoever, the newlyweds, was in full swing. He had avoided people he knew by disappearing into the crowd. But no amount of hiding could save him from Ektaji, the bride's mother, Salilda's wife. She appraised him like a cattle merchant appraising a sick cow. Did you have lunch better? Yes. Good. Prakash coughed. His throat was suddenly dry. How are you finding it? Looking after your mother? There was vehemence in her voice. Good, Auntie G. He said, looking at the ground. She suffered alone for a long time, you know. God brought you to her from the US on purpose. So people tell me, Prakash said bitterly. A look of kindness suddenly came across her face, as if she had instantly conjured up some empathy in her soul. What is wrong? You don't look well. Is everything okay at home? Yeah, yeah. 
I know you are angry at her for what happened to your father. But she had her reasons to ask him to leave. And it is her business to tell you. Good luck with that, Prakash stood up. Look, I will come over and do a Ganesh Puja to improve the energy in the house. I'll do whatever it takes to help. Ekta came from a family of famous astrologers and tantrics, and Prakash was pissed that his mother was sold on her bullshit supernatural beliefs. No thanks, Prakash said. I will see you later. Well, regardless of your opinion, I will be coming over, Ekta insisted. He dismissed her with a wave. Remember what I said, Prakash? She had her reasons. Yeah. Ekta watched him push through the crowd of revelers as he made his way to the exit. All the while, she noticed a dark shadow simmering away over his left shoulder. She placed a hand on her heart, her mouth wide open. The shadow climbed now and formed a cloud over his head. Suddenly, Ektaji was not at her daughter's wedding. She was in the middle of a dark forest filled with terrifying sounds. A shadow emerged from the thick foliage, its footfalls crunching the leaves. What was this creature? It walked towards her, slowly at first, then faster. It abruptly stopped when it was an arm's length away from her. Then it spoke in whispers. She watched it, frozen in fear and fascination. This thing that was seductive and devilish at the same time. She felt the hairs on her arms stand up. What are you? What do you want? She asked. An oppressive pressure now tried to crush her body. She stepped back, repelled by its malevolence. And it was right behind her, and it screamed into her ears. Ekta was back at the wedding. Prakash and his mother were in danger. But first, she had to understand the creature before she could destroy it. Prakash sat on a bed with clean sheets in a tiny room with a noisy fan, waiting for the sex worker he had paid for. He was in Darya Ganj, the famed red street in the outskirts of the city. There were faint sounds of creaking beds and feigned moaning coming from the nearby rooms. A rainbow of colours entered the room through the openings in the wall, made for ventilating the windowless rooms. 
It was always Christmas and Diwali in the streets outside. The hordes arrived in their cabs and private cars and motorbikes to pay for pleasure. Presently, the sex worker entered the room. She was in her late twenties and wore a plain blue sari. She looked like one of those shop girls you would see in textile stores, except she was made up with bright red lipstick and lots of talcum powder. She had a timepiece in her hand, and she set it on the floor and said, You have half an hour, sir. She then latched the door. She turned towards him and dropped the top half of her sari, exposing her firm breasts, struggling against the blouse. Prakash glanced at her once and then looked down at the floor. She breathed out sharply through her nose, in annoyance. She then walked up to him and placed his hands on her breasts. Don't you like what you see? she inquired. Sit, Prakash said. She sat next to him and immediately placed her hands on his thigh. Her hands then slowly moved towards his penis. Prakash grabbed her hand and placed it on his head. Stroke my hair, he said. Oh, she exclaimed. I can give you a head massage before we get down to business. I should know this by now. Not every man wants to shag straight up. What is your name? Prakash asked. Bina, she said. Thank you, Bina. That feels good, he said, enjoying her hands on his hair. She stroked his hair in silence for a while. What do you want next? she asked. I'm going to lie on your lap, if that's okay. You can do a lot more than that. But yes, here, she pointed to her lap. Prakash obliged. Are people nice to you, Bina? Most people are okay. Some people are nasty. Very few people are nice like you. You seem nice anyway. I am about to do something terrible, so I don't want you to think I'm nice, Prakash said. Okay. Okay what? You have paid me. I will agree with whatever you say she said. Prakash sighed. A woman announced the end of her time with her customer with a loud and fake orgasm next door. I can do hand relief? Veena said. No, Prakash said. I'm glad you think I'm nice. Thank you for saying it. Oh, no problem. You didn't think that I was nice because I paid you, right? No, you seem nice, Prakash sat up. What is this thing you are going to do that is not nice? She asked. Prakash looked at her with shame. I am going to drop my mother off at an old age home. I cannot look after her anymore. Vina stayed quiet for a bit, then she spoke up. It's not an easy thing, I understand, but are you sure you want to do this? Because you look sad that you have to make this decision. 
I don't know, Bina. It has been a while since I have made good choices in life. I will chalk this down to another one of my terrible mistakes. Right now, it feels like the right thing to do. Then, it is the right thing to do, Bina said. She grabbed his hand and squeezed it. Prakash gratefully took in the kind smile on her face. He smiled back at her. He then kissed her cherry red lips. Thank you, he said. The alarm on the timepiece went off. They both looked at it simultaneously. Prakash stood up and walked towards the door to remove the latch. Colorful lights and the festive sounds were gone. It was still the same room, but gone was Bina's warmth and kindness. This was a cold place, bathed in a faint white glow. A pall of dread and malevolence blanketed the room. Fear bore a hole in the back of Prakash's head, and he had to muster a great deal of courage to turn around and look at the bed. And when he did, he did so slowly. He could feel his muscles fighting against the movement. On the bed was a crone. Old and shriveled was her skin. Her mouth was full of rotting teeth and they were coated with a milky gelatinous substance that occasionally drooled down her chin. Her hair was filthy with dry leaves and worms. Her eyes were pearl white, as if its entirety was covered in a cataract. She was not a black, formless shape anymore. She had come to reveal her true self. Prakash knew this for a fact because his soul whispered it to him. You wanted to know what I am. <laughs> wanted to know if I was real. I can assure you, I am real. I am no nightmare. <laughs> And the darkness in your house called to me. Prakash froze. He could not move his body, nor make a sound. I will leave once I have feasted on your mother's body and soul. I'm sorry, Ma. I'm sorry. Prakash wanted to say when he hugged his mother. Instead, he said, 
you're going to like it here. You will have a full-time carer and lots of friends. They were in the large living room of Sanathana Aged Care Home, a fine facility for those who had entered their twilight years, which could be afforded thanks to Prakash's mother's central government pension. His mother looked around with sad eyes at the people her son had called her friends. There were twenty of them in that room, lounging on sofas and chairs, playing chess, watching Rajesh Khanna flicks on an LCD screen. They were clean, well-fed. This was clearly an aged care institution that pride on the high quality of service it provided to its residents. But if you looked closely, looked into their eyes, you would see the emptiness, the resignation. You could see that they dreaded the loneliness that night would bring, the muted goodbyes they said on the phone to their children, ringing in their ears as they tried to sleep, their bones aching like their hearts. Prakash's decision to assign the care of his mother to Sanathana was driven by two pressing matters. His inability to look after his sick mother and the paranormal occurrences in their home. The demon, which he was now convinced was real, wanted his mother, and it made sense to remove her from the environment which had seen an escalating series of terrifying events. It would bring some peace back to his home life. He needed to focus on himself, chart a future course, improve his mental health, apply for jobs. He had seen the error of his brooding ways. This was it. This would help him catch a break. He knew it. As if to justify his beliefs, a text message popped up on his phone from an international number. It was his friend Sumith from San Francisco. He excitedly opened the message as his mother looked around her with an anguished face. She was muttering something under her breath. He couldn't make out what she was saying. Can I call you now? said the text message. Yes, he wrote back, in caps, with three exclamation marks. The phone rang. The old man watching the TV glanced at him angrily. One second, Ma, he said with a touch on his mother's shoulder. She was still muttering. He took the call outside in the front yard. A rose garden, complete with sad and grey cement benches. How are you, brother? Long time no here, he said into the phone. They exchanged pleasantries, and Sumit came to the heart of the matter quickly. A position had opened up in his team, and Sumit thought of Prakash as the obvious choice to take on the role. Wow, uh, I don't know what to say, Prakash said. I am flattered, brother. Prakash was breathless with excitement. He plucked a red rose and then squeezed it like it was a stress ball. I will send you the position description tonight. Keep an eye out for it, Sumit said. I will, I, I will. Goodbye for now, Sumit said before exiting the call. Goodbye, Prakash said. When he walked back into the room, he realized he had momentarily forgotten his guilt. That terrible, dark, droning thing 
that was chipping away at the walls of his brain. His mother was still muttering as he approached her. What are you saying, Ma? He pressed his ears close to his mother's face. It sounded like, Da, 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 da. I had a call from the US, Ma. I have to go home and do some prep work for this phone interview I may have to attend. He stopped himself, realizing how insensitive he sounded. I, I will call you tonight. He waved her goodbye and then nodded to a kind middle-aged woman who was her carer. She helped his mother get up from the sofa and guided her to her room. Prakash watched her walk away gingerly as if she was stepping on a bed of glass. She was going to be fine here and it was not like he was going to ignore her. He would call her every night, visit whenever he could. Hell, the distance might even help them prove their relationship. He was escorted out of the premises by the watchman. The aged care facility was made up of two four-story buildings. It had lifts and ramps and western toilets, gardens and yoga classes, nurses and an on-site doctor, gaming rooms and cable channels, dedicated carers for each resident. Prakash rattled off the features listed in the organization's brochure in his head. She was going to be fine here. Prakash felt it in his soul. He had done right by her. He felt his guilt slowly dissipating. The gate closed behind him. She was going to be fine. When he got home, Prakash took a good long shower, had a quick dinner, and waited in front of his open email inbox for that magical sound that would herald the arrival of his ticket back to the US. The bad times would be in the rearview mirror soon enough. He knew it. There was a slight change in the temperature in the room. That is how Prakash first came to be aware of the presence of something unnatural sharing the same space as him. Placed on a stool on the right-hand side of his computer was a blue decorative vase. He thought he saw something reflected on its shiny surface, but that turned out to be nothing. Stop it, Prakash, he said to himself. The thing, whatever it was, it's gone. Get your shit together. The email from Sumith. Hi, bro, see attached PD. Let me know what you think and we'll tee up a Skype interview soon. This is it, Prakash said excitedly. Just as his right hand reached out to grab the computer mouse to click the attachment open, he felt something touch his left shoulder. A feeling. Like someone had rested their chin on his left shoulder. The weight of a pointed chin. Strands of hair and a cold ear tickling the skin on his left cheek. Wheezing close to his ears. Open it, a voice said. Prakash was frozen. He couldn't move, couldn't turn around, 
couldn't find the thing that was resting on his shoulder. Open it! He started breathing anxiously. You thought you could get rid of me if you took your mother away from here. He moved his eyes to the right. Now reflected on the vase was the twisted reflection of what clearly was an old woman with large pearl-white eyes that stared at the computer screen with hate. Her head was resting on his left shoulder. She was moving her mouth like she was chewing on air. You thought she would be safe if you took her away from here. Prakash thought his heart was going to leap out of his chest cavity. Open it, she said. See what I have done to your mother. Prakash clicked on the link. Instead of a PDF document containing details of his job, a black and white image appeared. It was taken from the perspective of someone who was standing on a rooftop, few stories high, looking down at the ground. He recognized the place. Recognized the rose garden with its cement benches. What did it mean? His mother looking down at the garden from the rooftop. He snapped out of the vile trance that had ensnared his body, leapt up from his chair and looked around. Still fearful, still breathing like he had sprinted to beat the fastest time in a race. Nothing. He was alone. He ran to the ground floor in his t-shirt and shorts and hailed the first cab he could find. He asked the driver to rush to the old age home. He nervously bit his nails, pinched himself, unable to cope with the anxiety. Ma, I am coming. When they reached the destination, Prakash leapt out of the cab, threw some money into the front seat and ran to the gate of the old age home. He started banging loudly, again and again. Then he stepped back and looked up at the top parts of the two buildings inside the compound. At first, he couldn't make out anything in the darkness of the night. The watchman opened the gate. What do you think you are doing, asshole? I'm going to call the police. A look of recognition flickered in the man's eyes. Did you not drop your mother off today? Come back during visiting hours, the watchman said, as Prakash continued scanning the rooftops. Prakash could now see her clearly, standing on the parapet of one of the buildings, dressed in her nightgown, swaying. Ma! Ma! he shouted directing the watchman's attention to the horrible sight. What is the quickest way up there? Prakash inquired. 
Follow me, the watchman said worriedly, now that he realized what was going on. The next few minutes were a blur. Prakash didn't know what stairs they took, which elevators they entered, which doors they unlocked to reach the top. When he got to the rooftop, his mother was swaying. A slight gust of wind and she would be gone. He ran, ran as fast as he could. And he reached her and pulled her down safely. The watchman looking on in horror. Ma! What happened, Ma? She looked pale and confused and her skin was cold. But there was no mistaking what she was saying. Darkin. Darkin. When Ektaji rang the doorbell to the apartment, she was not expecting it to be opened. Prakash had not returned her calls for days, but he opened the door with a concerned look on his face. Why haven't you returned my calls? I called you so many times, Ektaji said. Prakash left the door open and walked in, and sat gingerly on the couch next to his mother. He covered his face with his hands, and burst out crying. Beta, Ektaji said, walking in and placing her bag on the coffee table. She gently stroked the elderly lady's shoulder and then walked past her towards Prakash. She hugged him, standing. Prakash wailed now, a distressing sound that moved Ekta. Don't cry, Beta. Tell me what happened. She gently stroked his upper back, trying to calm him down. Ekta had to wait several minutes for Prakash to tell her the history of terror that had been inflicted on their lives. Ekta listened, wide-eyed, heart in her mouth, fear unsettling and upsetting the state of her body and mind. The apartment was no longer a middle-class abode, like millions of others dotted around the city. It was a ticking bomb, ready to go off, to shoot shrapnels of malevolence at anyone who dared to be in it. Ekta calmly listened to him, occasionally glancing at her elderly friend, who now seemed distressed. When Prakash was done, she sat opposite both mother and son with a grave look on her face. Firstly, Sunanda, I want you to tell your son why you kicked out his father. If you don't do it, I will. It is important that you take this step to begin to remedy what is going on here. I cannot stress the levels of danger you are in. Both of you. Sunanda shook her head and started weeping. Prakash looked at his mother with tearful eyes, begging for answers. I can't. I can't. Sunanda said. Ekta sighed. Your father, Ekta began, was harming children in the neighborhood. As you know, he was a primary school teacher. He shouldn't have abused his position to, uh, to molest the children. 
Sunanda's sobbing grew louder. She was clearly struggling with the memory. Prakash was stunned. He didn't know what to say. Ekta continued. His victims included some of your neighbor's children. When the evidence became overwhelming, your mother had no choice. Prakash stared at his mother, unable to process what he was hearing. His father was his hero. He felt his memories fracture and reassemble as the truth sent shockwaves through his body. Where is he now? Prakash inquired. That brings us to what is happening in your lives now, Ikta said. She grabbed her handbag and fished out a newspaper clipping and extended it to Prakash. Prakash grabbed it, wiped away his tears and started reading it intently. There was a black and white photo of a man who had committed suicide by hanging from a tree. He was wearing a pale full-sleeve shirt and dark-colored pants. The details in the news item were sketchy. The man had been living in a local slum. It was rumored that he was a convicted sex offender, that he was a schoolteacher once who was driven from his town in disgrace. A few days before his death, The slum dwellers had caught him molesting a little boy and they beat him up and drove him out of the slum. The story also mentioned something about the man frequenting the dens of black magicians in the neighborhood. Note the doll pinned to his shirt, Ekta said. Yes, I see it, Prakash said, noticing the black doll made with fabric, without any eyes, nose or ears, pinned to his father, like a ceremonial gift for his afterlife. A darkin is a vengeful spirit that can take many forms. It appears sometimes as a child, sometimes as an adult, deformed, vengeful and powerful, Ekta said. Prakash nodded, acknowledging the truth. Now that her suspicion had been confirmed, Ekta carried on. To conjure a Dakin, you must sacrifice a life. And I believe that your father had so much hatred for your mother and her act of exposing him as a monster that he offered his own soul to bring forth the thing that terrorizes this household. What must I do? Tell me, please. Prakash begged. This is going to be hard, child. Ekta responded. I will do anything to save my mother. I will not let that monster win, Prakash said. Ekta nodded. I will tell you. To get to the slum called Karipur, which was located in the outskirts of the city, one had to travel for an hour and a half on winding roads that exited the hustle and bustle of the city 
cut through farmlands, and then a forest that was more sinister than any of the nature sounds on your meditation app would have led you to believe. Narakarinya, they call it, Ekdaji said. Ekdaji had been a great companion for Prakash as they drove to Karipur to see the commune of dark magic practitioners who Prakash's father might have engaged with to awaken the Dakin. She was full of stories about the myths that were prevalent about the places they journeyed through. The very gates of hell are meant to be hidden in the bowels of this forest, Ekdaji said. Prakash was not surprised. It was midday, but the foliage of the forest seemed to spew darkness, muting the radiance of the sun with malevolent intent. crossed the bridge over the river Kanti, on the banks of which lay the sprawling slum of Karipur, a dismal town made up of crumbling mud huts and asbestos sheets black as coal and rotting palm leaves. The soil and the air in the place reeked of despair. They drove past it and turned right into a dirt road that cut through a forested area. A man with a machete hanging from his belt stood in the middle of the road, chewing pan. He raised his hand and asked them to stop. Prakash braked and looked at Ekthaji with concern. He is harmless, Ekthaji said with a smile. When the man peeked in through the side window, where she was seated, Ekthaji said, What is it, Biru? You don't recognize your friends anymore. Biru smiled and spat out a thick red glob of saliva. What rubbish are you talking about, Mem Sahib? Biru knows every ant that passes through here. My memory is my asset. Ekta patted him on the shoulder. This is my relative. We are here to see Druman Baba. Hello, Sahib. Biru said with a big smile, which exposed his pan-stained teeth that badly needed the attention of a dentist. Prakash waved nervously. Go ahead, Bidu said. Prakash gulped. Then he slowly put his foot down on the accelerator as they drove down the path, the tires crunching the gravel and disturbing the peace of the surrounding woods. The road ended in front of a large rocky outcrop that had been carved with human hands to create shallow caves. He could see the faint glow of lamps from within some of the caves. Prakash parked the car under an enormous tree, covered in creepers. Everything about this place radiated an otherworldly quality. Ekthaji exited the car and walked determinedly into one of the caves. Prakash gripped the steering wheel tight and watched her for a few moments, before willing courage into his body and following her. He shouldn't have been surprised that Ekthaji knew these places and kept in touch with practitioners of dark arts. She was, after all, 
a famous advisor on matters that concerned paranormal phenomenon. He had heard of the stories. She had manifested strong abilities as a medium from a very young age, that she had a powerful connection to the place beyond this illusory existence. Cut through the veil of Maya, and the kingdom of the dead has dominion. Sometimes, people like Ekthaji got the keys to the portals that led to these places. Sometimes, people like her got to peek through the keyhole. At other times, they would open a portal and see what dwelt on the other side, only to send back that which had come through to the world of the living. The Darkin was here. She needed to be sent back. By the time Prakash got out of the car and walked into the cave and reached the sanctum of Druman Baba, Ektaji was deep in conversation with him. An enormous man with a grey beard that nearly touched the floor and dreadlocks that fell off his shoulders like snakes. He was a sight to behold. Dressed in black, he was seared in ash and red kumkum powder. This is the sun you talk of, he said, looking at Prakash. Ekta turned around and smiled at Prakash. Prakash said namaste and nodded. Your father approached one of my students to awaken the Dagin. He gave her a bundle of money, which he claimed was his life savings, and begged for the vilest of dark souls that we had harvested from the innards of Nadakaranya. Baba drank a white liquid from a brass pot, and it spilled from his lips and cascaded down his beard. Truman Baba didn't bother to wipe it. The forest? Prakash asked. The forest is a strange place. People travel in there to commit suicide. Sometimes the mob bury their hapless victims in there. Restless and vengeful spirits wander its dark shadows. We harvest them to enhance our powers, to do our bidding. It is mostly harmless. I'm sorry, but I can't see what is harmless about that, Prakash said. I don't expect you to understand. Baba scoffed. Prakash shifted uncomfortably. Sometimes the forest spits out something so evil that it should never be harnessed for its powers. Unfortunately, my student did the exact thing that I had warned her not to engage in. She awakened the Dagin to satisfy her greed for the money your father threw at her and send it your way. Ekta sighed. Prakash ran both his palms down his face. He felt sick. How can we stop it? Prakash asked, his voice cracking in the process. You must eliminate the darkness that calls to it. And when it is enraged by the absence of the power source, it will come for you. Then you must strike at its weak spot. 
darkness. Weak spot. Prakash was confused. Every spirit that manifests in our plane will have a form. Ekta tells me you see an old woman. Yes? Baba said. Yes, Prakash said. That spirit was killed by an ailment in its neck. This much my student knew from her dealings with it. You will see a big rotting grey pustule on its form. You must attack that spot with all the fury you can muster. Prakash was thoroughly confused. He looked to Ekta for guidance. Ekta gave him a nod. He took that as a sign of assurance that something good might come out of all of this. What happened to my father? And where is that awful woman, your student, who brought this curse on my family? Baba took another drink. He then ran his fingers through his beard, combing it downwards. Sadness crept into his eyes. You really want to know? Rudra Devi prided herself on being Dhruman Baba's favourite student. She excelled at grasping his lessons on mantras and tantric rites that could manifest dark energies from the world of the dead and bring forth useful knowledge to share with the living, sold to the living for a good price. She had lived in poverty in Karipur slum. As a young girl, she sold corn and plastic toys at the local markets. And when that stopped bringing in the income, she sold her body to strangers. Rudra would have killed herself a long time ago if all she saw was the darkness in her life and in the people she engaged with. But what saved her was her ability to see beyond, see through the veil of darkness to the other side. All she needed was someone to guide her. And Druman Baba proved not just to be an excellent teacher, but also a saviour. Finally, she had knowledge and power, and most importantly, hope. What would have taken students three decades, she learned in three years. Her abilities were so powerful that she had Druman Baba's blessings to harvest spirits and use them to benefit her trade. Never use your powers to harm anyone. Never use it to satiate your greed, he used to say. By all means, make a living, but don't get mesmerized by the color of money. Don't forget our greed. She had harvested many souls over the years, rotting suicide victims hanging on trees in the forest, withering bodies unearthed from shallow graves the mob had dug. But one day, she came upon a man who was digging a grave in the depths of Naragaranya. An old woman he had no doubt carried in from the slum lay near him on a bed of dried leaves. She lay underneath a tree, dressed in black, milky white eyes wide open, with a look of hatred so intense it made her seem alive.
the middle-aged man in a tattered vest and Dhoti stopped digging when he saw Rudra Devi. He dropped the shovel and joined his hands in reverence. The people who lived in the slum revered the dark magic practitioners of Naragarinya forest, especially Dhruman Baba and his students. The man saw Rudra Devi stare at his dead mother. She was my mother, this vile woman. That hatred you see on her face was her constant companion. She felt disgust for life and love, detested us children, her own granddaughters, our friends. She would inflict pain on innocent creatures to seek pleasure. My mother, this vile woman, I didn't want her buried anywhere near my home, the man said. How did she die? Rudra Devi asked. The man hesitated. From old age? Rudra Devi did not believe him. She looked at the blue tinge on the dead woman's lips. It was not unusual in the slum to feed old people milk laced with yellow oleander juice to get rid of them when they became a burden. How much do you want for her? She inquired. What? The man asked. For not burying her, for parting with her body, she said. And no, I... He nervously looked at his feet. I have to give you some consideration in return for your permission to perform rites on your mother's body. Whatever you like, Tantrika, he said after considering her offer. Here, she said, extending a black thread. It will enhance your virility even into your old age. Blessed by the great Baba. The man accepted the blessings happily. He looked at his mother and then back at Rudra. You may go now. I will look after her, she said. The man put the sacred thread into his shirt pocket and walked away, the shovel resting on his right shoulder. Rudra bound the old woman with a rope against a tree. As the body rotted in the forest's heat, Rudra Devi, who had created a yantra on the ground with choke powder, chanted powerful mantras. The rituals went on for seven days and seven nights. A deadly rage emanated from this spirit. She had never felt such hatred from a subject before. It was not unusual for spirits to be angry during the harvesting process. But this was something else. But Rudra was confident in her training and she persisted through the difficult phases of the ceremony. Finally, she drew the old woman's soul into a steel nail covered in red kunguma powder and hammered it into the tree that was the abode of her decaying form. Once Rudra completed the rites, she returned to Baba, boasted to him about her successful harvest. She was so proud of what she had accomplished, 
and she couldn't wait for someone to come looking for her services, for something truly special, something that demanded higher than usual rates, a big bundle of notes thrown at her feet, demanding she unleashes the spiteful soul on some hapless victim. Baba's ethos had served him well, but she was not obliged to embrace his creed. Where was right and wrong when her father made her eat grass because they ran out of food? When she was hit like a fucking dog by her mother for failing to sell enough corn? When diseased truck drivers ravished her soul without mercy? I see darkness in you, Baba used to say. Remember my teachings. Do not succumb to temptation, child. But when a disgraced school teacher and a child molester from the nearby slum threw a large cloth bundle full of notes at her feet, Nudra Devi silenced the better angels of her nature. The man had the nervous energy of an animal who was being hunted. Dark circles around his bloodshot eyes, unkempt hair, filthy clothes. I want revenge, he said. I want the woman who wrecked my life to suffer. It will cost you more than a bundle of money, Lundra Devi said. Take it. It is a lot of money. It is all of my life's savings, he said. More, Lundra Devi said. Anything, the man said, falling on her feet. Anything. On the day of the ceremony, she pulled out the nail from the tree. The old woman's body was now merely a dry husk. Rudra hammered the nail into a featureless doll made from black cloth and stuffing from old mattresses. You must have this on you when you do the deed, she said, extending the doll to the man. Yes, the man said, smiling crazily. Thank you. She watched him walk excitedly to his death. Somewhere a noose was waiting for the man, a rope that would end his life and awaken the darkin. What happened to your student? Prakash asked, after taking a few moments to process what he had just finished hearing about his father. The air in the cave seemed stale. The lamps dimmed as if the life had been sucked out of their blue hearts. Ektaji shifted uncomfortably as Druman Baba began. After your father's death, Rudra came to me, complaining about visions about someone following her. She looked frail and distraught. She wasn't clear about who or what it was. I tried to help, 
but she declined my advice and said she knew what to do. One Sunday, dressed in ceremonial red, she walked into that forest to perform rites that would banish her tormentor. But she never came back. It was late afternoon now, but you couldn't tell because of the oppressive shadows in the cave. This abode of magic was the domain of the creatures of the night. The wind picked up outside and howled through the entrance. Drummanbaba continued. Her people in the slum say they have seen her, a gnarled, disfigured creature haunting the woods looking for hapless souls to feed her eternal hunger. They call her... Larchadale, Ekta offered. I have heard the stories. I don't think that's her, Thurman Baba said. I believe in my heart that she's gone. Maybe that is what you would like to believe, Ekta said. Truman Baba smiled sadly. A small tear travelled down from the corner of his left eye. I have given you everything you need to fight this demon. I wish you luck, Truman Baba said. Ekta signalled to Prakash. He placed a small bundle of money at the tantric's feet. They both bowed down with folded hands and left the cave. Prakash was looking out through the window at the passing forest. The setting sun made it look even more sinister. They had passed many roadside shrines dedicated to people who had died in accidents or gone missing in the forest. Do you think this truly is the portal to hell? Prakash asked. Ekta said nothing. But Prakash could sense that she was fighting the overpowering sense of evil that surrounded them. She saw and sensed things he would never understand. He took her silence as a confirmation of the evil that surrounded them. passed a shrine with two weathered helmets permanently nailed to a tree. A wreath of drying flowers rested sadly underneath them. Prakash wondered about the story those inanimate objects might tell, of the terror that befell the two souls who had lost their lives on this road. Five years ago.
Shankar and Vishnu were on their way to an audio production conference. They were from the neighbouring city, and the only way to get to their destination was the road that cut through Naragaranya forest. As usual, Vishnu could barely keep his attention on the road thanks to Shankar's constant stream of interesting factoids, stories of recent romantic conquests, and just plain rubbish. Occasionally, he broke into a song from a latest blockbuster. The integrity of the piece, compromised by the windshield on his half-face helmet, and his attempts at improvising. Did you know that cats don't taste sweet, but dogs taste salty? Shankar said. What? I don't even want to know how you gained this knowledge. Vishnu responded. Yep, it's true. Vishnu chuckled. Protestations aside, he wouldn't know what to do without his crazy brother, who had rambled all his life and kept them entertained through many a motorcycle journey. They were thinking of starting a podcast called The Motorcycle Diaries to capture the precious and hilarious rants they engaged in. The name wasn't original, but hey, you gotta start somewhere. Vishnu braked and pulled over the bike. What the hell is wrong with you, man? Late afternoon haunted forest, Shankar said. I gotta pee, man. And I'm sure the haunted forest wouldn't mind some uric acid to fertilize its soil, Vishnu said. You, yuck, that's a tad too descriptive for my taste, Shankar said. Do me a favor, please. Don't use the taste and urine in the same sentence, please, Vishnu said as he hopped off the bike. He walked into the woods where he could still see the bike and his brother and the road but people passing by couldn't see him relieving himself. Unlike his brother, he had a sense of shame. I mean, seriously though, what do you think about the crazy stories they tell about this forest? Shankar asked. I don't believe in supernatural rubbish, Vishnu said. I have told you so many crazy, unbelievable but true factoids over the years. Ghosts could be true, too. Maybe you are pissing on one right now, Shankar said. Shut the fuck up. I can't pee properly if you keep talking, Vishnu said. I mean, technically, you're more likely to get bitten by a snake than see a ghost around here. Did you know 46,000 people die from snake bites every year in India, Shankar said. Stop. That shit! You're freaking me out! Vishnu said, looking around to check if there was a poisonous serpent headed his way. The forest was suddenly unnaturally quiet. Even Shankar, who never stopped blabbering, had gone silent. Vishnu zipped his pants and turned round half expecting his brother to be standing behind him with a vine or a stick, pretending it was a snake he had wrestled into submission. Instead, his brother was nowhere to be seen. In fact, he couldn't see the road or the bike. It was as if he was suddenly transported to another part of the forest with an unending row of trees. Shankar? Shankar! he called out. He walked towards the trees where his bike should have been. There was nothing there. 
he caught a movement to his left. His brother was standing still, facing away from him. Shankar! he called out. No response. Vishnu walked towards his brother slowly. He felt the forest pulsing with evil intent. When he reached him, Vishnu touched Shankar on the shoulder. No movement. Suddenly, Shankar brought his arms up to his face and Vishnu heard the most disgusting of sounds. What the? He said as he forcefully grabbed Shankar's shoulders and turned him around. Shankar was clawing at his face. In fact, he had ripped off half of his left cheek, exposing the ragged flesh left behind, the gums, the teeth, and the tongue covered in gore. No! No! Vishnu screamed. Stop it! Shankar, who was now clawing at the other side of his face, halted his actions abruptly. He was staring at something past Vishnu, something behind him. The beginnings of a sick smile made the hole in his left cheek bigger. Shankar started clapping. Vishnu turned around slowly with dread. A mob of shadowy figures had emerged from the forest. The absence of light defined the beings whose forms were like pitch-black tears in the fabric of reality. They approached him, whispering at an inhuman pace. Before Vishnu could will his legs to run, they wrestled him down to the forest floor. He squirmed and cried on the wet leaves, crushing them underneath him. The creatures held him down. Shankar was in a frenzy, clapping and shouting joyfully. Glory! Glory to the Master of Shadows! The soundtrack of his madness merging with the sounds of the forest. The shadows gathered stones and wood from the forest. They stood over him now, holding up the primitive weapons, ready to attack. Vishnu sensed their demonic desires like a crushing weight on his chest. His body was paralyzed. Their iron grip made it impossible to escape. The first stab from the sharp end of a stick punctured his right eyeball. Before he could process the pain from it, a rock crushed his skull in. Then something punctured his lungs. His kneecaps shattered next. With each strike, they reduced his body to a form that would make identification a difficult process.
All the while, Shankar danced and clapped and tore away at his own flesh, till he too was a primordial heap of gore. Prakash paced in front of the computer, occasionally glancing at the email from his friend Sumit in San Francisco. It read, Dude, what happened to you? You have declined the last two calendar invites for an interview. My boss is growing impatient. This is your final opportunity. If money is the issue, we will negotiate. We know how good you are, and I will see to it that they cut you a great deal. So respond to the invite ASAP. Dhruman Baba's words rang in Prakash's ear. You must eliminate the darkness that calls to it, and when it is enraged by the absence of the power source, it will come for you. Then you must strike at its weak spot. Prakash knew the reason the darkness existed. He had finally confronted the painful truth that had destroyed his family, understood the actions of his mother, realized that she didn't need forgiveness. He knew what he needed to do to the invite, yet here he was holding on to lies about the situation, pondering ways in which he could escape the reality that his mother faced every day as her body gave up on her. His career, all the future paths that lay ahead of him, the wealth and opportunity that awaited him in the US of A., a raging storm of confusion threatened to drive him mad. He glanced outside his window. The sprawling city covered in smog, the dirt, the noise. Familiar and comforting and disgusting at the same time. These strange feelings evoked by his motherland. Surely he would have a better quality of life in the US. He was comfortable taking his mother with him. He had broached the subject to her in the last few days, but she had repeatedly insisted that she wanted to die here, in the land of her forefathers. If he left, what would that thing do to his mother? Prakash wondered. He didn't want to say its name, yet it crept into his consciousness. Darkin. Prakash paced faster. The alarm on his phone went off. He had promised to take his mother to the local garden. It was good for her to get out of the house and enjoy some fresh air. Retired volunteers maintained the garden named after the father of the nation. It was a long stretch of flower beds and grass that ended in a mini woodland. And beyond the woods lay the canal that flooded during the monsoon season, but otherwise cut an anemic presence. They recently had heavy rains, so the canal was in full flow. Prakash switched off the alarm and exited the room, the email still filling up the computer screen like a giant question mark. He helped his mother onto the wheelchair and exited the apartment. In the elevator ride to the ground floor, he checked if his mother was comfortable. He gently brushed stray hairs away from her face and made sure the cashmere blanket was covering her properly. 
the evenings got chilly in this part of the world. His mother smiled at his concern and gently tapped him on his hand. Recently, something beautiful had blossomed in their hearts. Finally, there was light in their lives. But Prakash knew it could be snuffed out at any moment, either by a demon or by his own actions. For now, he didn't want to think about it. He wanted to spend quality time with his mother, go for a walk, enjoy the golden hour and take a few snaps of the garden. He saw the beauty in things again. For all the terrible pain imposed on their lives, things were looking brighter. Maybe the darkened would sense this and go away, never to return. But the invite for the interview, his dreams in San Francisco, his mother, her health. He tried to silence his noisy mind, bringing his focus back to the present. Prakash and his mother moved through the garden enjoying the sights, waving hello to people who they knew from the neighbourhood. He stopped and moved the wheelchair closer to the flowers so his mother could touch and smell them. He smiled at the innocence with which she caressed them. These strolls in the garden had a positive impact on her health and it made him a happier man. They moved past the flower beds and arrived at the edge of the small woodland. He parked the wheelchair under a tree and took his phone out to capture photos of butterflies. Won't be long, Ma, he said. He walked away from his mother to where the English roses were planted in a neat row. He altered the settings on his phone to ensure the focus was right when he took the snaps. While his mother was a quiet, soft-spoken woman, she was not in a vegetative state. She always made her presence felt through the shuffling of her clothes or the tinkling of her bangles. He couldn't sense her near him. He turned around, expecting to see her asleep in the wheelchair. Instead, she had disappeared. Prakash panicked. Ma? Ma? he shouted. He looked towards the entrance of the garden. It wasn't as packed as before, but a few people were still stretching and chatting to their friends while enjoying a rest on the steel benches. His mother was nowhere to be seen. She wouldn't have gone off without telling him. He looked towards the woods, now darkening with the setting sun. He pocketed his phone and ran into the woods. He shouted after her. No response. The woods that looked so serene and beautiful before had now transformed into a chakravyu, the ancient battle formation in Hindu myths that trapped hapless enemies in its spiral tentacles, a maze that slowly crushed their will to live. Prakash did a 360, rows upon rows of trees stretching into the distance. It seemed the place had suddenly expanded in size. Ma? Ma? he shouted. Nothing, not even the chirping of birds returning to their nests. He wiped his sweaty palms on his pans and looked in all directions. Where was she? A painful thought suddenly entered his consciousness. The canal. 
Prakash ran in its direction. Oh God, please let nothing happen to her. He ran. He could now see the Darkin pushing his mother purposefully towards the canal. Dressed in black robes, its movements resembled an elderly human. The demon was not in a hurry. It trudged on, determinedly, its focus solely on dumping the frail old woman's body into the canal. His mother seemed to be motionless. Stop! he shouted. The demon stopped for a few moments. Then it sped its movements almost running now as the wheelchair hurtled towards the canal. Prakash ran after them. The fire of hatred towards the creature fueled his body as he picked up his pace. They were close now. He could see holes in the Dargan's weathered robe and the white rotting flesh within. He leapt, trying to tackle the Dargan, but the demon disappeared into thin air and he landed painfully. The wheelchair, with his mother resting on it, had stopped moving. It was meters away from the edge of the embankment. Prakash was concussed from the fall. He slowly crawled towards his mother. Ma? Ma? She stared now, as if waking from a dream. She moved the wheelchair around to face him. Bloody scratches covered her face. She reached out to him. Beta, you saved me again. Prakash felt faint, but slowly and with great determination, he rose to his feet. He wobbled for a second, then steadied himself. Then he hugged his mother and wept like a child. He knew what he needed to do. When they finally got home, he tended to his mother's wounds, fed her a warm glass of milk and put her to bed. Then he went straight to his computer declined the meeting invite and sent his friend a polite note thanking him for the job offer. I have decided to stay back home to look after Ma, the note said. From a distant corner in the apartment, he heard the creature wail. This was the end game. The moment he declined the offer to go to the US, Prakash signaled to the Darkin that he rejected the darkness that had dwelled in his heart for years. He had learned to love again. It enraged the Darkin. For a creature that only knew how to hate, Prakash's transformation was like being immersed in a vat of acid. Before the night was over, before it vanished into the void again, the Darkin wanted to claim its pound of flesh. Prakash could sense it, and he was as prepared as he could be. He looked through the notes he had made based on his conversations with Ektaji and Dhruman Baba. Like an engineer performing maintenance tasks on an airplane, he ticked off items in a checklist he had made in his favorite red moleskin notebook. He closed the windows and made the mark of Shiva on them a trident drawn with the aid of red wet kumkum powder. He lit a lamb in the puja room and made three offerings, 
A glass of milk, a slice of chicken, and a small sharp knife wrapped in red silk handkerchief. He then prayed to the gods in the pantheon who had destroyed Asuras in the myths, asked for strength and courage with folded hands. He would need divine help to endure the night. He went to the kitchen and grabbed the large container Ekdaji had brought him a few days ago. Then he went to his mother's bedroom, via the living room, from where he grabbed another large packet, also a contribution of Ekdaji. When he reached his mother's room, he placed the items he was carrying on the floor and sat on the side of the bed. His mother was crying. He could tell she was fearful of what was to come. Don't cry, Ma. I'm here. We survived that monster that was my father because of you. We will endure this too. He wiped away her tears. He would not let that thing have his mother. Prakash opened the package he grabbed from the living room. A clue of sacred string which was blessed by Ekthaji and Druman Baba. He unwound it. Passed the string over his mother, then under the bed and over again, like a spider spinning a web, creating a protective shield around her. It was not so tight that his mother couldn't move or breathe, but he made sure it covered most of her body. Then he squeezed his mother's hand to provide assurance. I love you, Ma. He now opened the lid of the container and grabbed a handful of the white flour mixed with turmeric, infused with the blessings from a ceremony Ekthaji had performed for them. He drew a circle around his mother's bed with the powder. He walked around the house and also made a protective barrier with them at the entrance to every room. Then he picked up the phone and rang Ekthar. It's done, he said. Did you hear that? He said. I did. It has begun, Ekta said. Be strong. Ekta placed the phone back in its cradle and rushed to her prayer room. She had spent the entire day preparing for this moment. In her prayer room, she had drawn a large yantra with coloured chalks and decorated them with red flowers. The yantra was a series of circles and triangles drawn on top of each other, with great precision, expressing the many layers of reality, framed by a large square, the borders of which was adorned with beautifully scripted Sanskrit mantras from sacred Vedas. Golden lamps were placed around this diagrammatic portal to the other world. Many metallic objects were stacked in the four corners of the room. Ornate knives, steel tumblers, gold-plated ceremonial artifacts. Ekta sat in Padmasana pose in front of the yantra. She folded her hands in prayer and chanted. First, she offered a prayer to Ganesha to guide and help Prakash remember the knowledge she and Druban Baba had imparted to him. She then prayed to the great goddess Shakti to help protect her friend, Prakash's mother. Ekta was sweating. For all the preparation they had done to face off this vile spirit, the fear remained. Ekta had no clue how the demon would react. She opened her copy of the Atharva Veda. Originating from 700 BCE, it was a collection of 20 books with 730 hymns of about 6,000 stances. 
the knowledge of our forefathers that had helped keep out the surge of evil from the depths of hell rested in these pages. Ekdeji's immense skill as a medium directly resulted from years of training she had in engaging with the mantras and using it to banish many a vile demon to the netherworld. Select mantras from the tenth book was the key to travelling to the land of the dead, through the veil of reality, from where Ekta would try to help Prakash banish evil. She began. There was a stench when Prakash walked past the puja room. The meat had rotted and the milk had soured. The offerings had performed their role. Prakash lit an agarbati and apologized to the gods for soiling the sacred air in the room. But it was an essential step to protecting themselves tonight, a night that could bring unending terrors. Prakash discarded the two spoiled items. He then grabbed the knife from the puja room and returned to his mother's bedroom. He looked out of the room, at their humble abode, the home where he learned to walk, to talk, to spread his wings. The shadows in the apartment had deepened. The street lights outside had dimmed, as if a spectral fog was choking the life out of them. The air hummed with angry energy, seeping through the veil of reality, from some unknown region of the universe. There was a low hum that unsettled the rhythms of Prakash's body. He looked at his mother, covered in the sacred thread. He had done his best to make sure she was as comfortable as possible. But she was still awake and staring fearfully at the ceiling. Not long now, Ma, he assured her. He grabbed a straw mat from one of the shelves, unrolled it on the floor, popped a pillow on it and lay down. He waited, his ears tuned to the smallest of sounds in the house. A crash, somewhere in the apartment. Then a window shattered, sending shards of glass flying everywhere. Soon, a cacophony of destruction descended on the house as the dark invented her fury on the memories the family had built over the years. Cracks appeared in the photo frames on the wall. Vases were flung to the floor. Furniture was overturned. She was coming. Ekta remembered the forest. She had been here before when she first discovered the trace of evil on Prakash, that same eerie domain where she had first laid her eyes on the Dakin. Here was the kingdom of eternal night. Something emerged from the forest, behind her. She turned around. The Darkin had arrived. She was not messing about this time round. 
unlike her featureless form last time, the demon had revealed her true self to Ekta. The old woman was a picture of rage. She was pale and naked. Worms and bugs travelled in and out of the orifices in the demon's body. You have come to die, haven't you? The dog coiled her body, like a serpent readying for a strike. Ekta turned and ran into the forest, chanting mantras to help her keep her courage. She was laser-focused as she cut through the vegetation to escape the demon. An angry roar echoed from behind her. She could hear shrubs and small trees being shredded to bits as her enemy closed in. The creature's foul breath was now bouncing off her skin. The moment was near. Ikta knew what was coming next. She steeled herself for the pain. The darkin cackled. Ikta was firmly in its kill zone now. Suddenly, Ekta was tackled to the floor. She fell on the wet leaves of this spectral domain, face first, and before she could even react, the darkin turned her around, grabbed her by the neck, pulled her up, and slammed her against a tree. Ekta screamed in pain. Remember, remember what you need to do, her inner voice said. The darkin looked at her intensely. A cruel smile graced the white flesh on her face, which was oozing pus. You will save the boy? You, who is now squirming like a worm? <laughs> you will banish me? The grip around Ekta's neck tightened. If she didn't act immediately, she would pass out. She pulled out the sacred thread blessed by Drummond Baba from her pocket. After the storm of anger unleashed on the apartment by the Dakin, it was now eerily silent. Ektaji had asked him not to close the door. She had asked him to bait the creature, to let it come to him. He looked through the open doorway at the darkness beyond. A sound of something moving on four limbs, then silence. He peered into the gloom. It was like staring into the void. It moved again, then stopped. The darkin emerged from the darkness, pale and naked. She was on her hands and feet, like an animal on a hunt. Boy! I have come for you and your mother, she said. Prakash balled up his fists, his nails digging into the flesh of his palm. Come on, you wretched creature, he said. The darkin looked at Prakash's mother, wrapped in the sacred thread like a mummy being prepared by the Egyptians. On its journey to the netherworld. 
You think that will save her? I will eat her heart out in front of your eyes. And Arkin sprung up at an inhuman pace, landing on top of Prakash and pinning him to the mat. Ikta coughed and spluttered as the Dakin's grip tightened. She was certain that the injuries she sustained in this plane would be inflicted on her mortal body as well. If she dies in the netherworld, she would die in real life too. The faces of her daughter and her husband flashed in front of her eyes. Ikta mustered all her strength and will and threw the sacred thread onto the demon's hand. The Darkin's flesh sizzled as the thread landed on its skin. The creature let out a cry of pain and loosened its grip on Ekta, letting her slide to the floor. Ekta coughed and vomited bile. The Darkin's pained expression changed. She looked at the thread clinging to her flesh amusingly and pulled it off. She dangled it in front of Ekta with a smile. Is this what you were going to use to bring me down, sweetheart? No, that was just a distraction, Ikta said. She pulled a small vial from her pocket, opened it and threw the liquid within at the Darkin's eyes. The Darkin was now perched on top of Prakash. Its filthy, long nails dug into his body. The flesh on the Darkin's body, covered in sores, hung loose, ready to fall off like a rotting piece of fruit. And on her neck was a large grey pustule that throbbed continuously, as if a giant dark heart was imprisoned in that rotting tomb of skin. She smelled like death and sewage. Prakash looked into her milky white eyes in horror, and saw his fearful face reflected in it. The demon now pressed its face close to him, and licked it slowly and gently, leaving a trail of white, milky saliva behind. Prakash gagged in revulsion. Worms fell on his face from inside the creature's nose and mouth. The Darkin pulled up and laughed. (laughs) Your friend just tried to burn me in another domain, but she has failed. She will die tonight along with you and your mother. What a special day this is turning out to be. Prakash whimpered. He knew it was not time to lose faith. No matter what happens, you must come through to save your mother's life. Everything depends on you. He heard Ekthaji's voice in his head. The Darkin smiled at him, like a being who knew its destiny was about to be fulfilled. Will you be so kind enough to grant a poor old woman her wish? I want to make you watch your mother's death, but with just one eye. The Darkin said as she brought her filthy long nails close to his eyes. 
Ikta watched with great satisfaction as the creature reeled, grabbing its eyes and screaming in pain. When it dropped its arms, she saw two milky white globes eject from the eye sockets. Blinded, the creature fell to the ground and squirmed and thrashed in pain. Ikta chanted the Mool Mantra that would help her exit the netherworld. She was back in her puja room. Ikta had a purple mark around her neck where the creature had grabbed her, and she was shaken, but otherwise she was fine. No time to waste. The battle has not ended, she reminded herself. She folded her hands and prayed for Prakash's success. Prakash watched as the creature's eyes fell out of its sockets, and it halted its attempts to rob him of his own eyes. The darkened squealed in pain, a sharp sound that threatened to burst his eardrums. Now, he heard a voice in his head. He grabbed the knife beside him and stabbed the demon in its pustule. It burst open like a dam, pouring black fluid all over Prakash's body. Disgust and terror gripped him in equal measures. The demon fell off him and rolled on the ground, pain etched on every part of its body. Prakash stood up. He now towered over the darken, feeling confident. Go away! Go away! It said, clawing a thin air its empty eye sockets expunging green and grey matter from within. Die, you demon, Prakash said. He stabbed the creature all over its body while avoiding its swipes. It tried to crawl away from Prakash, into the darkness of the rooms beyond the bedroom. He continued stabbing, venting all his frustrations and his fury on its decaying form remembering everything the creature had done to him and his mother, punishing the creature for the transgressions of his father. The darkened's movement ceased. It laid on the ground like a pathetic pile of rotting flesh, wheezing, weeping, muttering something under its breath. For a second, Prakash felt sorry for the creature, but then its mutterings grew louder, and he realized there was no salvation for this wretched spirit. I hate you. I will come back and hunt you. I hate you. I hate you. I will come back. I will eat your mother's heart out. Prakash entered a frenzied state of mind, and he stabbed the creature repeatedly till it stopped uttering its vile words, and its meat sizzled and melted away into a milky gelatinous puddle. I did it, he thought. He used the knife to extricate his mother from the protective web. He hugged her, and together they wept, united in love, finally free of the darkness that tore them apart years ago. Ikta felt a weight lift off her shoulders. The lamps in her prayer room had suddenly become brighter. Prakash, you did it, son, she said aloud. Tears streamed down her face. 
Even with her experience and Drubin Baba's advice, there was no guarantee that this would work. So much depended on Prakash's courage and his love for his mother and his composure in the face of the demon's fury. She pumped her fists, delighted that her friend was now safe from the hateful spirit her dead husband had unleashed on her. The prayer room was bathed in the light of the lamps, everywhere except for one spot. Ekta noticed shadows growing in one corner of the room. She couldn't see anything in the beginning, but then it became clearer. Something peering at her from the shadows. Something twisted and hateful. Something dressed in red. The demon she saw was not present in the room. It was a vision, a portent of something that would soon crawl its way out of the Naragarinia forest and unleash its terror on the living. Lal Chudale, Ikta said. <laughs>